I can uh, vividly recall uh, this one school bus ride home when I was in the second grade. It was Halloween, which is appropriate for the moment. And I happened to sit down next to a friend of my little brother who was a couple of years younger than me, and I told him a ghost story. Uh, It seemed appropriate for the holiday. It wasn't actually a ghost story. It was the entire plot of a Goosebumps book that I had read. Uh, I was in second grade. It was the longest book I'd ever read. There was a particularly attractive bookworm that sat on the front row of my second grade class. I was trying to impress her. It didn't work. But it did benefit me later on this bus ride. So I recount the plot of this Goosebumps book, and, and uh, I didn't mean anything by it. I was just trying to be festive. And he gets off at his stop, which was a couple blocks ahead of mine. So then by the time I get to my front door, his mom had called my mom to say, your son told my son a ghost story on the bus. And he was so scared that when he got home, he was shaking and crying. And I can vividly remember that day some 30 years later because it's the first time I can ever remember feeling a deep sense of guilt that something I had done had inflicted pain on someone else. When I was in high school, I got so angry with my younger brother that I punched a hole in my bedroom wall. We never did anything about it. just covered it with a Bob Dylan poster and pretended (laughs) it didn't happen. In college, I was out on my own, and that brought a whole lot of insecurity up to the surface for me. The way that I discovered that was most effective for dealing with that was gossip. So long as I was on the side of those mocking others, uh, then I felt included and safe and secure. I dealt with a pornography addiction when I was in my early 20s, and I use the term addiction to describe it because it got well beyond my willpower to contain I did not want to do this, and yet there I was again in Bible college, uh, hours after finishing writing a paper on Romans, Googling something on my laptop again. And that did not just go away when I became a pastor, by the way, because I can recall in equally vivid detail what it was like to wrap myself in a blanket of shame on Wednesday evenings when, as a youth pastor, after teaching teenagers, the way of Jesus, far too often I would fall asleep with the glow of my iPhone screen on my face. And I can remember praying really sincere and theologically misguided prayers. Lord, please do not penalize these kids because I cannot seem to get it together. And it didn't just go away when I got married either. You know, your fiancé stumbling across your internet history and then confronting you about it is one thing. That conversation's awful. I've had it. But getting a year into your marriage and still having the same kind of internet history is even worse. And then years later, returning to your phone from time to time to find that the internet history's been left open, that she still checks up on you because she doesn't trust you, that's when... I realized that my struggle had ripped a seam through the relationship that I cared most about in my life and produced insecurity within the person that I covenanted security toward. You know, confession and the feelings of guilt that often precede it, it gets a whole lot less cute as you grow up, doesn't it? It's been more than a decade since that's been a struggle for me on any level. I've found what the scripture calls victory in that particular area of my life. But I share that part of my story openly because it's been my experience that God uses my wounds far more than my competencies to produce healing in others. 
These days it's impatience and anger that's got a hold on me. Which does tend to sound fine as long as you keep it general like that, but if you were in the room for some of the petty arguments that I've started with my wife or some of the times that I've lost my patience at one of my sweet, innocent little children, it wouldn't seem so general to you anymore. In fact, just last night, I was jet-lagged and, and couldn't sleep, and I'm up in the wee hours of the morning, and I find myself reading this memoir that a friend gave me just before I traveled here, and in the opening chapters, the author is recounting an event when a four-year-old version of herself was, uh, her mother lost her temper on her and it was so formative for her, she still recalls it and it forms her to this day. And popping into my imagination is my four-year-old son, Simon, who after a very stressful week, I was short with just before I came and traveled internationally and I could see his bottom lip quivering and pools of tears forming behind his eyes as I lost my patience. And I prayed in the bed last night, that prayer that I've prayed so many times as a dad. Oh, God, please let your grace outrun my failure as a parent. So today I want to talk to you about confession. And it's important that you know right up front that I'm on the confessor side of this equation and not on the absolver side. And I know that you know that. I know that you know that there's nothing different about me and you when it comes to confession and the need to confess. But if we're going to go anywhere together today, I need you to know that I know that too. So you're in the middle of this teaching series titled Let the Light In. And as Pete mentioned, I've been here a number of times before. It's such a joy to be with you. This church feels like home away from home to me. And yet I've never actually been in this building before. So it's amazing to be here. This is a beautiful home you have. I do have some ethical qualms about the human cage that you've installed. (laughs) But other than that, I love what you've done with the place. And you're in the midst of this teaching series, Let the Light In, which is is titled after a song, yes? All so that Pete could continue to find reasons to sing during his sermons. (laughs) And... uh, It's all about moving from the seven deadly sins to the seven virtues, but of course, the practices and virtues, they don't get you free. They just teach you how to live free in the freedom that's been won for you. Uh, but, But what picks the lock to your freedom is this practice called confession. That's what gets you free. And Pete introduced the teaching series several weeks ago using Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is actually a song of joy. There's even a biblical picture of David dancing as he sings Psalm 24, and yet wedged right in the middle of that psalm is a quick word of confession. It's a bit of a record scratch. It seems out of place, but in reality, if it's the life and presence of the living God that you want, then confession is not only part of the deal, it's a really, really good part of the deal. And that's where we're headed. Now, we live in a culture that promotes a profound sense of denial about the biblical concept of sin and its presence in our lives. The only sin that we can universally agree upon today is you calling anything that I'm doing sin. Uh, The only universal sin is the accusation that anything at all is sin, and that's a, a dangerous place to be. Let me offer you two pictures. The first comes from the Ragamuffin Gospel, where there's a true story told from an alcohol rehab center in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the States. And there's a new patient who shows up at that center named Max, and the facilitator says, so Max, how long have you been an alcoholic? And he says, whoa, that's not fair. 
I mean, I enjoy drinking, but there's nothing more to it than that. And then he begins to ask him questions about how many drinks he has a day and how often he drinks and all that sort of thing. If there's any bottles hidden anywhere in his home and, and he just holds his ground. No, no, I, I enjoy martinis and there's nothing more to it than that. The facilitator pushes and pushes, but Max continues to hold until eventually he says, someone give me a phone. And he calls Max's wife on speakerphone. And she recounts in front of the whole group a story from last year's Christmas Eve. It seems like it happened just yesterday. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of earth shoes for her Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60, and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store. That is exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the Corkin Bottle, that's a tavern a few miles from our house, and told Debbie he'd be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero Fahrenheit. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon at silence. Yes? Her voice grew faint. She was crying. My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in the euphoria of the reunion, he lost track of time, purpose, and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and her fingers. When we got to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger on her right hand. She will be deaf for the rest of her life. At that moment, Max fell on the floor in the middle of that group and began sobbing hysterically. He had told so many lies that he could not even see the truth about himself until it was reflected back to him. And until need was admitted, healing was impossible. Max's story is a picture of the state that we find ourselves in in Western culture, promoting freedom publicly, but inwardly miserable. Uh, we've universally agreed to sort out our deepest issues in private and keep up appearances in public. And that's a tragic misstep because hiding is an agonizing lie. Uh, the deep longing of the human heart is to be known completely and loved completely. Hiding simultaneously protects us from both of those longings. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he who is alone in sin is utterly alone. A second picture of the same tragic condition, this one equally true but more ancient, is found in John chapter 8. A woman is thrown face first down in the dirt at the rabbi's feet. A few minutes ago, she was so carefree and alive, smiling and hurrying from her house to his, the way she likely always did in the early afternoon, when her kids were off at school and her husband was at work and she was with him. Now, of course, no one on the day they say their wedding vows thinks they're going to become an adulterer or adulteress. But with him, at this stage in her life, it's the only place she feels alive again. Only on this day, the priest walks in on them, rips her right out of the bed, marches her with a fistful of her hair in his hand right through the city, and then throws her face first down in the dirt in the temple in front of the rabbi's feet where Jesus is teaching. The law says death penalty, stone her. 
Are you going to disagree with Moses? Now, this was the perfect trap. He's wedging Jesus right in between the people and the law. It seems Jesus has nowhere to go, and Jesus doesn't say anything right away. He just stoops down in the dirt right next to where she's been thrown and lets the silence hang as he kind of traces his finger through the sand. And when the moment has hung so long and the silence has gotten so heavy that the priest must have been about to blurt out something else, Jesus stands up and says, all right, sure, stone her. Just make sure that whichever one of you is without sin throws the first rock. Plop, plop, plop. She flinches when the first rock hits the ground, but it doesn't take long for her to realize they're not throwing stones, they're dropping them. And when every rock has been dropped and every accuser is gone, she finally looks up into the eyes of love and love only. And he says to her, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. And you know what I find fascinating is that this is the story that she would have gone on telling forever. That the exact part of her story that she wanted to hide away and keep from everyone else becomes the part of her story that she'll never stop bringing out of hiding. Because it was the very part of her story where God's grace and mercy got to run the deepest. You see, this is the kind of author God is. He's not one who edits our past. He's one who repurposes and redeems our past. Her most exposed failure was also her greatest victory. Frederick Buechner says it this way. What we hunger for, perhaps more than anything else, is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often also what we fear more than anything else. It is important to tell from time to time the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we tell it only to ourselves, because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are, and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth and hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. Is he confession, the terrifying free choice to become our naked selves before God and one another is not an admission of failure. It is a declaration of triumph. Because of Jesus, our most devastating failures can become our greatest victories because they're the places that his grace hits us head on. That first picture I offered you, Max in rehab, that's where so many of us are. But the second picture, a woman caught in adultery and freed, that's where we're invited to go. Sin is right at the center of this, and it is simultaneously the most controversial and the most universally agreed upon part of of Christianity. I mean, it is agreed upon everywhere. Everyone agrees there's something wrong with the world. Everyone. The difference in philosophies and religions and cultures and eras all comes down to what vocabulary do you use to describe what's wrong with the world. Sin is the precise point where we all seem to find agreement. And yet sin is also hugely controversial. It has been so manipulated, abused in some cases, that the second someone like me puts on a pop star microphone and stands on a stage like this one and uses that tiny three-letter word, some of you will, will want to tune out everything that I might say after because you have in your past some subjective and very legitimately painful experience when someone who had the opportunity to offer you grace instead beat you down with sin. And so I want to offer as best I can the broad biblical definition of sin. 
Because undue pain and manipulation gets attached to sin. Not when we understand it broadly as the Bible describes it, but when it's described narrowly and specifically and laid on an individual. So uh, let me do the best I can to give you the broad definition because there's actually eight Hebrew words for the one English word sin. The biblical understanding of this thing is massively broad. So here is the story of sin. On the Bible's opening page, man and woman are described as naked and unashamed. That's about a whole lot more than just physical nudity or some kind of hippie liberation. It's about the state of their souls. If you flip back, or I'm sorry, forward just one page, then you'll come to the fall when sin plunges into the biblical story. You see, believing in the existence of God has never really been the rub for most humans. Uh, Across cultures and eras, the existence of some deity bigger than myself has always been the popular opinion. Even today, in a post-everything society, in a wildly secular city like London, surveys indicate that most people still believe there's some kind of deity running the show. The existence of God has never really been the thing. It's trusting the God we believe exists. That's always been where we've struggled. And pretty early on in the story, Adam and Eve begin to suspect that God is holding out on them, uh, that more control would lead to more flourishing. And so they reach for that fruit in an attempt to get the fullest, freest kind of life that they've been promised by God apart from God. And that is what the Bible calls sin. It's a good desire channeled through the wrong means that always ends in pain. Uh, Sin, a definition I find helpful is this one, an attempt to meet my deep needs by my own resources. A good desire, wrong means, ending in pain. Now the human response to sin is then hiding. Right away, Adam and Eve realize that they are naked and they clothe themselves in fig leaves to protect themselves from one another. They hide away in the brush to be hidden from God. When they hear him coming in the garden, they they sneak deep into the woods. And of course, he's calling out their name and quickly finds them. Difficult guy to play hide and seek with, to be completely honest. And when he sees them, the bottom drops out of his stomach. Who told you you were naked? Said another way, who stole my children's innocence? The final words of the Bible's most heartbreaking chapter are this. He, meaning God, placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. So the entrance back to the fullest, freest, most abundant kind of life is guarded. Now Adam and Eve leave the garden walking east, but they do not go alone. God goes with them. You see, God's not lowering the standard of holiness, but he is coming after us. The biblical story is not one of a compromising God. It's one of a pursuing God. And the rest of the biblical story is just a 66-book anthology on a single theme, pursuing love. Here's the whole story, quickly, if you want to save yourself a lot of reading and a whole lot of time. I've got good news and bad news. The good news is that you are loved. Loved right now just as you are. Loved completely. Loved in a way that you cannot lose. The bad news is that you're going to find that love very hard to trust and even harder to experience. That you will forever try to drum up your own lovableness. To somehow become lovable in your own eyes the way you already are in God's. The good news is called grace. The bad news is called sin. And so Jesus shows up to people living wedged between these forces, and he bends down to get eye level to a serial adulterer, and he says, then neither do I condemn you. You cannot outrun my love. 
God didn't lower the standard of holiness. He found a way to make us holy that wasn't dependent on our performance. Grace wins. That's what David discovered. Leading to prayers like, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. In this prayer of confession, David is doing what Adam and Eve weren't willing to do. He's running to God naked and unashamed. When he sees himself, his true self, the parts of himself that he would be tempted to cover up with fig leaves or or clothe away in the brush, David does not hide. He runs to the Father. I've made a mess. I'm filthy. But you, if you wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. And this wasn't just one dramatic moment. I mean, David keeps on praying like this. Here's Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's openly asking the Spirit of God to search him, to find those little parts of him that he doesn't even see. He's asking that his sin would be identified. Why? Because confession is a terrifying gift which should sound like a contradiction, because it is. What's the only alternative to hiding? It's the refusal to hide. It's the terrifying insistence on bringing our naked selves before God and community. And that's the only way that we open ourselves up to unconditional love. I mean, what made David a man after God's own heart? Have you ever asked yourself that? That's basically what's on his tombstone, right? But then if you read this guy's bio, I mean, he's a liar, a manipulator, a murderer, an adulterer, maybe a rapist, depending on how you weigh the evidence. So what on earth makes his heart like God's? Only this, that he did keep a journal. It's called the Psalms. It's that prayer book wedged right in the heart of our Bibles. And the Psalms are peppered with confessions. Uh, peppered with raw, honest, unfiltered nakedness before God. David was a long way from perfection, but he refused to hide. And so David did not reverse the curse. He repeated Adam and Eve's failure. He tried again and again to meet his deep needs by his own resources. He channeled a good desire through the wrong means resulting in pain. Pain both for himself and for other people. David didn't do anything to weaken the curse. In fact, he furthered it. There's one coming who will reverse the curse. But it's not David. But neither did the curse define David. Grace. Grace defined his life. It's the theme of his life. He made an absolute mess, but when he realized he was naked, he ran to the Father. And that's the power of confession. That he takes our worst moments and turns them into our triumphs. The wounds that that we are inflicted by then become the source of healing to a hurting world. David doesn't resist confession. He runs to it because he knows the Father's heart. And Jesus makes David's discovery our discovery. See, God sent Jesus because we needed more than just information. If all we needed was information, God could have dropped down a doctrinal statement. But it's hard to be loved by a doctrinal statement. And we needed pursuing love. Hebrews 4 describes him this way, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Jesus doesn't reveal to us a God who's cool and calculated. He shows us a God with a deep, personal, even an emotional response to sin and the havoc it wreaks on my life and yours. Hebrews says Jesus' response to our failures is empathy. Now, the ancient Greek word that's translated here into English as empathize is the compound word sympatheo. Can you say that? Now, that's a a combination of the ancient Greek pasco with uh, a prefix meaning with, uh, like the English, like we use the word co in English, like co-dependent or co-exist or co-pilot. Now, pasco means to suffer. So the most literal translation of this word is co-suffer. That's how Jesus deals with our sin. He co-suffers. He suffers with us, suffers the consequences of our actions and thoughts and disordered desires, suffers the agony of our hiding and pretending and presenting that keeps us forever trapped in insecurity. He suffers the estrangement from God we choose when we try to manage our sin patterns, to sort them out on our own, to hold them like a beach ball beneath the surface of our lives instead of simply bringing them to him that we might be healed. You see, our intuitive assumption tends to be that God is closest to us when things are going well, right? It's when I'm making right decisions and thinking right thoughts and living on the foundation of his promises and keeping in step with his spirit. That's when he's nearest to me, right? But Hebrews says that it works exactly the opposite way, that Jesus is nearest us in our weaknesses, not just our strengths. You see, our hearts corrupted by sin work like the opposite sided poles of a magnet. They're ever resistant to grace, always pushing him away, assuming that my weakness repels his presence. But Jesus' heart, uncorrupted, worked exactly the opposite way. Scripture teaches that he's drawn to us in our sin, that he has a gut-level response to meet us in the place of our failure. Dane Ortland writes, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. How are you guys doing? It feels more intense in here than usual. <laughs> starting to get worried up here. You guys okay? Are you with me? Yeah. All right. He shares in my pain. He takes on my condition, yet he did not sin. And that's our hope. That is our only hope, that the one who is deepest in intimacy is also fullest in healing power. He's with us in our weakness always. So then how do I take him up on his power to heal? Confession. Confession is how we turn to him, look him in the eye, acknowledge his presence there with us, not to condemn, but to rescue And I know, personally and painfully, what it is to find myself face down in the dirt. I know the defeating track of the accusing voices that plays in my head, and I know that they are right. I am not a man of clean hands and a pure heart. My actual life is so frequently a mockery of who I really intend to be. And yet each time I find myself there in failure, I also find him stooping down next to me and tracing his finger through the dirt. And when I'm ready and willing to look 
and lock eyes with his face, I hear him, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, this love that I can't seem to outrun, it's the only thing powerful enough to change me. And so what if every time I find myself there, face down in in my own failure again, it's not an opportunity to wallow in shame or to grit my teeth and try harder this time. It's an opportunity to hear him again say say to me, forgiven, clean, new, redeemed. And what if the parts of our stories that we would like to erase in the end become the parts that we never stop telling? And what if you find yourself there again this afternoon and it is not an opportunity for you to wallow in guilt or to grit your teeth, but it's an opportunity to discover how loved you really are right in the midst of your failure? You see, that's the place that we can finally discover what David discovered, that God's grace is more powerful than my sin. That's a discovery that is made not in the comfort of theological reflection, but only in the terrifying nakedness of personal confession. You see, in our story, confession charades as a failure, but it's not. The lie that plagues the modern church is this, that spiritual maturity means that as I grow up in Christ, I confess less and less because I have less to confess. Uh, But the life, death, and resurrection means that confession is not the waving of a white flag. It is a victory cry. See, in our story, we run to confession and we fear keeping up appearances. Spiritual maturity doesn't mean needing to confess less frequently. It means greater freedom to confess. In the ancient Near Eastern world from which the Bible emerges, uh, new cities were not on new developed land. Instead, one city was burned down and conquered, and then the next city would be built right on top of it. So if you were to do an archaeological dig in the ancient Near East, it's like discovering one story after another story after another story after another story. And that's confession. It is to excavate the layers of your life, uncovering not just what's obvious on the surface, but story after story after story of your own history. History that if you don't discover it, will get to keep defining your present. See, in the modern church, we've mistakenly reimagined spiritual maturity as the need to confess less. As I ascend in relationship with God, I confess less because I've got a whole lot less stuff to confess. But spiritual maturity is not an ascent. It's an archaeological dig. Discovering layer after layer of what's been in me all along. Spiritual maturity then is more confession, not less. It's to discover the depths of my personal brand of fallenness that I might discover that his grace is not a general idea, but the most deeply personal one. A mature church is not a church without sin. It is a church without secrets. It is a people that refuse to come together and keep anything in hiding. You see, we say that we believe in grace, but confession is the way that we trust the grace that we say we believe in. And the reward of confession is the parts of our stories that we would most want to hide away, the beach balls that we're holding underneath the surface of our lives, become the parts of our stories that we never stop telling, because that's the kind of author God is. He's not an editor. He's a redeemer. David discovered the healing power of forgiveness, and that discovery turned confession from an admission of defeat into a victory dance. And you are invited to the same discovery. But that's not even the end of the story. Confession is not only about maturity. Confession is about both maturity in the church and revival in the city outside. 
This part's easier to see if I just show you a picture. The Moravian Revival was a 100-year, 24-7 prayer meeting started at a refugee camp that led to, statistically speaking, the largest missions movement in world history since the Book of Acts. So here's that story. In the 1700s, this radical German guy with phenomenal hair named Zinzendorf turned his inherited family property into a refugee relief site, complete with 34 homes. They named it Herrenhunt, which means the Lord's Watch. And then 48 of those refugees, 24 men and 24 women, divided up the hours of a day and covenanted to pray 24-7 for heaven to come to earth. The global missions movement that's common in the modern church today started at that refugee camp. And when pastors like me tell the Moravian story, it's almost always to get people like you to get really serious about prayer and want it bad enough. (laughs) But when those ancient refugees tell their own story, the people that actually lived it, they don't talk that much about the prayer movement. What they talk about is the night of confession that started the prayer movement. You see, Zinzendorf loved this group of refugees into the family of God, and then he gave them this radical vision, an early church kind of community, a pocket of heaven right here on earth. And five years into that plan, it was mostly underwhelming, disillusioning, and disappointing. And that's because revival sounds eloquent off the lips of leaders, but it requires people to selflessly love others in a way that's costly to themselves, and that's against human nature. So five years in, there was a whole lot of disillusionment, disappointment, and just a bunch of settling for some good but lesser version of what they had been promised and said yes to in the first place. And then on August 13, 1727, they gathered for another normal church meeting. And on this evening, Zinzendorf preached on confession. And as he did, the Holy Spirit fell in such a powerful way that in that very moment, in that very meeting room, they began to confess their wrongs and forgive one another. No buts, no explanation needed, no holding back, and no fig leaves, just naming what was and wiping the slate clean. And they say said that the spirit fell so powerfully that the meeting went on for hours, and then they stumbled out of the meeting room like drunks out of a pub at last call. Not because the worship was so powerful, but because the confession was so honest. And it was two weeks after that night that they decided to start a prayer meeting, and that prayer meeting then lasted 100 years. So how did the Moravian revival happen? Vision and grit? No. 100 years of prayer was the overflow of confession. Revival does not happen because we all agree it would be a great idea and would make London awesome. (laughs) Revival happens when ordinary people choose to undress of their fig leaves in front of God and one another. God's always had a soft spot for human weakness, scars. That's how he heals the world. God's one and only method of renewal is grace. He is stubborn and he's sticking with it. Confession is how we simultaneously choose both. My weakness and his grace. And that's how something as dismissible as confession can spark revival. Confession was so alive in the early church. If you read Roman history, it will astound you how central confession was to the worship gatherings of the church in the first three centuries. 
And then about 300 years in, the church grew more institutionalized and confession was given over to the bishops. And then in the year 1215, the first confessional booths were installed in the church and, and confession, or, I'm sorry, and they began to practice confession in secret to a priest. So what you've got is just over a thousand years after Jesus, confession goes from a heavenly invitation to be practiced in community to a confessional booth with a man you barely know in secret. And today, Catholic or Protestant, we've mostly dismissed the practice entirely. You see, the deep tragedy in our history is that the power of confession was stripped away from the church. And the great invitation of our future is to restore confession to its rightful place within the local community. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And this word healed, it's the ancient Greek iomai, which is defined as wholeness. And it's the exact same Greek word you'll find repeatedly in the Gospels when Jesus supernaturally heals someone of a physical ailment. It's the word used when Jesus cleanses the skin of a leper or stands up a paralytic. So biblically speaking, healing looks like a blind man seeing, a paralytic standing up and dancing, Lazarus walking out of his own grave, and you Undressing yourself of your fig leaves to confess before God and community. That's in the same category. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Why? That you may be healed. It is not our gifts, insights, plans, or qualifications through which God will heal us and the world around us. Our wounds confessed and healed then become sources of healing for the world around us. So I'll land here. C.S. Lewis paints such a beautiful and vivid picture of confession in the voyage of the Don Treader. When Eustace, a boy who had traded in his innocence to a deceiver when he didn't really even know what he was doing, was then forced to live in a covering of dragon skin. It's Lewis's reimagining of the Genesis fig leaves. And he tries again and again to peel this dragon skin off of him, but every time he does, it just grows right back where he peeled it away. And finally, exhausted and defeated, he just lies down. And when he does, he's approached by the lion, Aslan. Lewis is reimagining of the person of Jesus. I'll read from there. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. We want your freedom, Lord. 
We want your life, the life to the full that you promise. And he responds powerfully but gently. You'll have to let me undress you. See, David knew what it felt like to be undressed and then thrown into that water. He knew the sting at first and the childlike joy in the end, which is why he says in Psalm 51, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Let the place of agony, pain, failure, shame, defeat, let it become the place of joy, life, rejoicing. And that's the invitation today. Lives that feel crushed right now will be turned to joy in this very room. How? Well, you'll have to let me undress you by confession.